welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OMFIF, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Chan, CEO of eCora, a DLT company uh, for CBDC uh, focused on cybersecurity. Hi, David. Hello. Um, hi, everyone. So I'm glad to be uh, on this podcast. Yeah, as uh, Lewis said, I'm, I'm the CEO of, uh, of eCora. We're a DLT company where we've built essentially a, a programmable money platform that's highly secure and, and scalable. So glad to be here. Thank you, David. Um, yes, so I, I wanted to discuss today uh, the topic of DLT and, and blockchain and, and just to sort of go through some, uh, perhaps explode some myths that I think are, are still quite pervasive and, and get get your insights on on what is really true about blockchain, what, what's it good for, what's it bad for, uh, and, and maybe correct some, some misconceptions and, and help to sort of direct the discussion around blockchain towards the places where it can actually be useful. Um, so in, in that context, I'd like to start off talking about uh, perhaps one of the, the most common things people say when you mention blockchain when they're not from a tech background, uh, which is understandable because it's what we see a lot in the media and that's um uh what people say regarding the carbon footprint of blockchain's verification process uh can you talk a little bit about that it's very common to see things like bitcoins energy consumption is equivalent to a small country or a medium-sized country argentina i think is often often cited uh yeah can you tell us a little bit about uh about what what that claim uh actually means for blockchain so it's true. It's true that if you if you look at those types of blockchain, then energy use is high, transaction throughput is low. But I think that that now, five ten years on, I think the technology has changed, and there are lots of blockchains out there that uh, that are actually really efficient and and uh, don't have that uh, that problem with with energy use. And uh, I mean, I guess. One example, in fact, it, within the CBDC world is that there's a project Hamilton in, over in Boston and they are, okay, they've only gone through the first phase, but they essentially used a lot of blockchain principles and they showed that they, they could get the, the throughput, um, for, for transactions. And so I think, yeah, it's, uh, I understand where that's coming from, but I think that as people within the, the CBDC space learn more about what's out there, they'll soon see that a lot of companies actually are, are proposing solutions that are really efficient, including ours. Ours, ours, we consider ours to be fast and efficient, low carbon footprint. It is, it is still slightly more than, than perhaps a, a very simple database solution, centralized solution, but, and that's purely because uh, of the additional security requirements. But in terms of proof of work and, and that using of energy to, to mine blocks, I think that's going away or it's for the newer blockchains. Yeah, yeah. So the proof of work being the consensus mechanism that underpins the, the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, but it's the, the industry has kind of moved past that for, for new protocols. Is that, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. They've, there's not only is there proof of stake, but, but we've, added to that and we have a totally different protocol um, 
it, it's true that those protocols are, are way more efficient, uh, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, what, what is blockchain appropriate for? And I think that if you look at um, the solutions that are being proposed, it's typically for CBDC, it's, it's a, maybe a two or three tier solution. And you could argue that, that for the top tier, which is the, the gross settlement layer, uh, a centralized solution is fine. I think, you know, if your transactions are really simple and the number of counterparties to that transaction is simple, you know, if it's a, a retail CBDC where you have a, a customer and a merchant um, and all the transactions are the same, then maybe maybe a blockchain isn't um, isn't that useful because you don't have the complexity of of having what we call programmable money or, or embedded finance. Now, so I think for the first tier, it's central banks may or may not decide to use a, a blockchain. For the next tier, which is the the custodians, I guess, or the the, the PSPs, they may or may not decide to to use blockchain depending on what sort of ecosystem they they want to build. Um, again, if it's just straightforward payments, nothing complex, then yeah, they they could use a, a centralized solution, but I think that we see a future whereby lots and, you know, thousands and thousands of fintechs may come together and produce, um, collaborate to produce smart contracts, which offer a lot more complex uh, financial instruments or uh, services. And in, in that case, when you have that many participants and they all have to collaborate on specific contracts, then it makes sense to have blockchain. It makes sense to have a system whereby you've got the added level of security, you've got the added level of being able to check that transactions are are really from that party, and it's it's then a lot easier. So, in I think that in the immediate term, you may not need a blockchain solution, but I think if you think of the the future whereby you open up the, the ecosystem to lots of other um, service providers then in that case, you probably do need a, um, a blockchain solution. And then more recently, I guess, there's people who have been talking about whether it's called business CBDC or industry CBDC. It's companies starting to come together to, to do their own smart contracts. So it's not just fintechs, but there's a, there's a financial element to what they're doing, but they're forming consortiums to, to do their own things, maybe to do, uh, to, to do with their logistics or supply chain and stuff like that. You're talking about machine to machine payments and that sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, it could be, it could be machine to machine payments as in they record things through their, through their uh, supply chain, but it, it could be, it could also be providing services for, for, um, for people. I mean, that the, I guess the, the normal example is that you could be driving down a, a toll road and then as you pass beacons, it charges you, you know, a P or, or whatever the amount that, that you use. Um, so just automated payments that are triggered by machines rather than people doing things. Yeah. I mean, we can do, uh, you know, automated payments to a degree with a centralized system, right? Can you, can you talk a little bit about why, or what the sort of different qualities of, uh, this, the automated payments that you're talking about are that, that make it more useful to have a distributed uh, system? So it depends on, on whether 
those uh, machine to machine payments or the the smart contracts that they execute is it is it sort of <clears throat> only that machine that does it or does it use other services right and as soon as it it has to collaborate with other machines or or other systems in order to provide that service then it gets slightly more complex right you need sometimes you need to know whether the connection to that machine is is correct or whether that machine that you're connecting to is you know hasn't been hacked and and stuff like that so so you suddenly get a um a situation whereby machines collaborate with other machines and you need to know the provenance of of those messages um and in in that particular case it's better to to have a, a distributed blockchain solutions whereby lots of machines are are um helping each other provide that that service and each one you need to be able to know whether hey that signature that, that machine used that I'm relying on is that the correct one mm. and so on um yeah. it's true you could you could uh use a centralized uh, solution but you then have lots and lots of tiny centralized solutions and i just think it's just better to to use one sort of uh, blockchain smart contract to actually integrate all of those and and provide that solution in 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 one go so so to speak right yeah yeah i guess as you say the the sort of old fashioned way of doing that the the pre the pre dlt way of doing that would just be to have a uh to have a, a centralized third party that can guarantee the authenticity of uh of this but and i suppose i mean you from a cybersecurity point of view you still need um you still need kind of an authority figure but yeah i guess you call you call on that authority from a distributed architecture is that you you could do yeah so you could so if you integrate somebody's service right so you're providing a service to a customer but you're using other services to to fulfill all your requirements then they will have to tell you it's going to be from these machines or or these uh, services and so you have to then know that the, the keys to those so that if you do get a message you know because essentially you're on the internet right and you receive a message you have to be able to know the provenance of that you have to be able to know that it came from um a source that was originally defined as as being the correct one yeah and um now although you you can argue that that needs a centralized solution it it doesn't we we don't use a centralized solution for that so um we use we do use certificates and one of the reasons we don't use a centralized solution for that is that on all our uh, on our stack we rely heavily on the cpu secure elements so these days most cpus are, are shipped with uh, secure elements whether it's a phone or a pc or a server and so we use that secure element to sign things on on our behalf so we know exactly which machine signed something yeah. and um so from a security point of view we don't use centralized service we we just uh, know that that machine has a secure element and it has yeah. these keys yeah i guess um i guess what i was meaning was that 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 cpu secure element uh kind of relies on the the central element of the the manufacturer but they're not actually involved in the process itself like you, so that's the i guess that, you that, the centralization the central party out of the transaction itself a sort of step back in the process correct yeah so when they manufacture the 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 equipment they will the inside the secure element it will burn a, a random key 
and um, um, and the manufacturers don't know what that key is. So that it's so it's fairly it's to us it's the safest way of storing keys because it's randomly generated at manufacturing time, and it identifies essentially identifies that device. Mm. Yeah, so it's a, a really interesting way of, um, you know, creating a, a, a means of uh, transacting where you can securely identify the, the parties, but without having to rely on uh, very expensive and, and time-consuming consensus, consensus-driven uh, systems like, like Bitcoin. Um, I wanted to uh, talk about another uh, another aspect of blockchain that um, that people talk about a lot. It's it's sort of a very well known aspect of it, but um, it's it's maybe not always a desirable quality. So people talk about the the immutable ledger of blockchain a lot. Like that's the you know the the record of, of transactions that's you can only add to. You can uh, historically go back and change uh, the record and you know, for for Bitcoin, that's very much been uh, a feature. You know, that, that was part of the the value of it. Um, but if you are following the the sort of current trend of the way a lot of central banks are, are thinking about providing digital currencies, a lot of them are thinking about cash. So there's the US eCash Act, um, which is cash doesn't have a ledger tracking its its use, and uh, maybe that's not something people want. And so, can you talk about if uh, providing this sort of cash-like digital currency is incompatible with the idea of a, a blockchain immutable ledger? Um, partly, I guess. So um, certainly in our solution, although we have a, a blockchain piece to, to record the events, um, because we go all the way to secure element, we can do ledgerless transactions. So we can store balances within the secure element. And then effectively, when you transact between, you know, two phones or your phone and a car terminal in a shop, you're effectively transferring money from one secure element to, to the other. And it doesn't need to be recorded on, on a ledger. Now, eventually, when you top up your, your wallet, the, that, the, whoever's giving you the money will, you know, if it's a bank, they will record that the fact that they've given a certain amount of money. That, depending on the country, how the country, you know, the central bank implements it, that wallet could or, or may not be uh, anonymous. So it depends on on the country. Um, I know, for example, you know, in, in talking to to users in various countries, I know that, uh, for example, you know, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Their, their cash use is still high. I mean, it, you know, pre-pandemic, it was 80% or so. And it's, whereas in the UK, cash use is, is, is now only, I think, 17%. And so you, you can imagine those countries asking for ledgerless solutions, whereby they just do not want to, to record anything on, on a ledger. Now, I think what's going to happen is that most central banks will probably say, okay, you can have an, an anonymous wallet, but you'll only be able to store I don't know, 100 euros in it. Each transaction can't be more than I don't know, 25 euros. So they'll probably place limits on, on, on those types of wallets. Um, but we'll see whether, whether central banks do, do go for, for those types of solutions. But yes, um, for, I think that for existing blockchains, it, it might be a challenge for them to, to implement ledgerless transactions. They will have to somehow implement 
um, secure elements into their stack to be able to to provide that. Um, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about does layer two solutions like like Lightning on the on the Bitcoin network? Um, is that is that ledgerless in that the it's kind of netted out so the the person to person transactions might not be all recorded because of that? Is that is that kind of a way that a sort of layer two solution could that kind of get you to a ledgerless way of doing things? Possibly, but if you if you look at the way that uh, that a user would would use their their uh, wallet, they would go into one shop, spend money, go into another shop and spend it. And so, if you if you try and implement that as a, a layer two solutions, then how how do you do that? Do you do you have uh, do you sort of dynamically create a relationship between that shop and you at, at that time or you know, it, it, it starts to, to get messy. Yeah? So there it's it's definitely, you're still holding it in a sub-ledger. It may be hidden from the main one, but it, it's it's still a sub-ledger. Whereas if you can do um, direct secure element to secure element transfer, then it it's you're basically saying, well, the balance is in, is in the card uh, or in the phone. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that if you lose your phone or your, that card, then you know, you, you've lost, uh, you've basically lost uh, that amount of money. Um, but there are there are people talking about being able to recover um, a, a an anonymous wallet. So it is it is possible. Maybe you need to have another phone, or maybe you back it up to your PC um, and you can recover it there. But essentially, it's it's basically um, tougher to to guarantee uh, recovery. Yeah. Um... But layer two solutions, not sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, it's not like uh, with with the interbank payments, you've got established relationships where there's hundreds of transactions going back and forth per day. And netting makes a lot more sense there than if I'm buying something from one shop and from another shop. It's not it's not exactly the same use case. Um, yeah. On the on the topic of losing it, I mean, I lost my wallet the other day and I got my cards back, but I certainly didn't get the cash back. So that is something that people are used to. And I suppose if you're talking about capping the the amounts that can be held in that kind of format and, you know, uh, or and used anonymously, then that at least puts an upper limit on the amount that you can lose in an unrecoverable manner, um, which is something that people are used to living with, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess. So, as as long as those limits are, uh, are fairly low, I think um, people then know. I mean, the chances are the phone's worth more than than what's yeah. in in the wallet. Um, but then, you know, on the topic of that, uh, you know, in discussing with people about ledgerless transactions, people still talk about KYC and stuff like that. But mm. that still goes on. In other words, in order to get a wallet, you have to go through KYC. But once you once you've gone through KYC, the the wallet smart contract in, in our case will check your record to see that you have a KYC record and then we'll create the wallet. Now the wallet it creates can either, can either be one that is known by, by somebody, all right? So you'll, you'll go to, you'll get the wallet from your bank, say, or it could be totally anonymous one where, whereby the wallet number is nobody knows who it belongs to. It just knows that it's a wallet. It has a, a certain limit. And you can use it for your day-to-day transactions. Um, but there's certainly, it, it doesn't bypass the KYC requirements. It just, 
it just you still need to go through that to get your wallet. But at least then, depending on how a country d- decides to implement their uh, their those types of wallets, it it may or may not be known to a party who owns that. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose well, yeah, that's not um uh. It's not a technical requirement who it's known to. It's it's, it's a policy decision that the, the regulators can uh, can come up with for themselves. Yeah. Um, okay, fantastic. I just want to return briefly um, to you were talking a little bit about uh, the situations where where blockchain might be more useful in the industrial CBDC. And um, do you have any other examples of uh, you know you mentioned? road tolls uh, as a way of doing it. Can, have you got any other examples of uh, what the sort of systems that would be uh, best built with, with blockchain in mind would look like? So I, th- I think the ideal one, uh, and this is an example that was that was given um, by somebody I spoke to, is that you can get an industry come together and put their whole supply chain on a blockchain. So, you know, the, so I'm going to pick an example, you know, the car industry, they, they could come, they have, you know, th- tens of thousands of suppliers, their supply chains are huge. And so in order to actually involve all of those into one system, essentially, and be able to record um, demands for for parts and, and delivery of parts, all of that can be streamlined uh, in, in a blockchain system. Now it's true you could they could all have disparate systems and and lots of communication, but it's just a lot easier if that consortium set up standard smart contracts for all the suppliers to use. And so there's a there's a quite a um, an efficient way of logging things that happen um, and and accounting for it. So and you can imagine any industry has that situation, right? Pharmaceuticals they they want to be able to trace the Trace the um, the uh, the manufacture of of, of uh, the the drugs they create because uh, in a lot of cases there's you know fake drugs being put into the supply chain and just things like that. So um, yeah. so those are other use cases. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, a few companies have uh, implemented blockchain for. Uh, their supply chains, you know, tracking certificates of origin, things like that. But uh, I guess the more you can build within that system, you know, if, if you've got the payments within that system as well, uh, the more the more streamlined you can make it. And uh, and I think um, you know, you were mentioning at the start that uh, the because of the verification process, it's probably still going to have a slightly higher energy, even with a modern blockchain protocol, it's probably still going to have a, a slightly higher carbon footprint or, or energy uh, process than uh, than a centralized system. But um, it's uh, we were recently doing a panel with somebody in the banking community who was making the point that it's actually very difficult to estimate what the current uh, energy footprint of the present system is. Nobody's done the maths of how many additional emails have to be sent and uh, and time that's spent on uh, uh, on transactions that could be cut out with with a sort of better designed, more streamlined system. And I suppose I suppose rather than looking at the energy usage per hour or per year of a system like that, it might make more sense to think about it as 
the energy usage per transaction. And hopefully with a, a more efficient system, you get, you know, more transactions done and, and produce more value that way. That sort of justifies the, the yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that um, when you get into those types of, of systems, currently the, the way they're implemented is that each company has to have their own servers or have to have their own you know their own systems, and um, and they probably have multiple systems to to log the event, do the accounting, you know, and all of that stuff. Um, but you could code all of that in in a in a more straightforward smart contract, which is then which ties in all of those functionality into one thing and um so i think that the bigger the bigger the the consortium gets um the 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 uh the more efficient it becomes if you use a, a blockchain solution rather than each company having their own set of servers to 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 do all, all, all the the uh the logistic stuff yeah yeah and i guess that's that's the the real innovation from from blockchain. I mean, it's always been advantageous to build systems where you do everything the same way and everyone shares the same system, but it's been previously very difficult to have an architecture that everyone can can operate in the same way and, and agree on and, and trust. Um, right, yeah. Well, I think we should uh, leave it there. A fascinating, fascinating topic. Uh, and uh, I hope I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you for your insights. And we'll see you again soon, I'm sure. OK, bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening. Uh, please make sure to uh, tune in next week. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. Uh, do log on to our website, onfifth.org. You can find all our previous podcasts, our reports, our commentaries there, uh, and we're also on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks very much. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.